Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-conspirator, Daniel Larison, as we seek to not only stick our noses under the establishment tent, but to stroll right in and make a ruckus. Joining us this week in our enterprise is Elizabeth Shackelford, author of The Descent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age. But first, let's talk about Kazakhstan. Most Americans are probably unfamiliar with the inner workings of this former Soviet state to the north of Afghanistan and South South Russia. I certainly am not. But the Central Asia country was all over world headlines last week as anti-government protests across the country erupted with demonstrators burning buildings and cars and attacking police. The target of their ire, President Kasem Jomar Tokayev, cracked down on the demonstrations. And as of Monday, 8,000 people had been detained and multinational peacekeepers in the form of Russian troops had been called in. According to experts watching the dynamics there closely, say anger over the economic situation, particularly fuel prices had boiled over and at the regime, which many say is run by corrupt elites attached to the last president, Nursultan Nazarbayev who had ruled for three decades following the fall of the Soviet Union. There is a lot to unpack here, Dan, but what I would like to talk about is rumblings from the West, particularly Hawks in Washington, who want to use this as yet another reason to go after Russia. Over the weekend, the illustrious former National Security Advisor John Bolton penned an op-ed in which he said, quote, Vladimir Putin's strategy to reestablish Russian hegemony within the borders of the former USSR has been both patient and agile, and Kazakhstan's troubles afford him significant possibilities, end quote. NATO, he writes, must make this strategy untenable. To Bolton, several former Soviet states are merely part of Putin's silent legions, or as he put it, poorly disguised expeditionary forces waiting to be activated in order to expand his neo-empire. Bolton counts Kazakhstan, Moldova, and Belarus in these ranks. Um, Dan, should we be worried here, um, or is this just the ravings of a mustachioed man-man? Well, I I think we all know the answer to that one. But whenever whenever Bolton uh, holds forth on this stuff, it's it's safe to assume that he's, he's just pushing his own uh, ideological agenda. He, he's obsessed with his idea in this piece uh, that Russia is trying to reconstitute an empire or, or, or reconstitute the Soviet Union, uh, and there, there's simply nothing to it in this case. Uh, you, I mean, you can argue that in terms of some of the statements that Putin has made about Ukraine, that he has a, a sort of a, aggressive view of, of what Russia should do in Ukraine, uh, because he doesn't really think it's a real country, uh, but w- with Kazakhstan, that, that's there, there's no evidence that he has this notion of of expansionism or or trying to absorb Kazakhstan or anything like that. And in fact, the the CSTO troops, the Collective Security Treaty Organization troops that were sent in, uh, most and mostly Russian troops, uh, were sent in to help stabilize the situation in Kazakhstan, are, are already getting ready to turn around and leave. Right, the situation has been uh, brought under control. And so the idea that this is uh, some sort of land grab or power grab uh, is, is uh, simply a mistake uh, in, in analysis. And, and, and Bolton makes those all the time. Uh, what, what, we, what seems to have happened in Kazakhstan is that you've had uh, two factions within the elite uh, 
forces loyal to Nazarbayev and, and those loyal to Takayev. Uh, and and they're, they're struggling over who gets to actually be the dominant faction within the government. And it seems like Nazarbayev and his allies have lost that struggle. A lot of them are getting pushed out. Uh, and uh, now uh, Nazarbayev has been pushed out of the, the Security Council that he had uh, had a, a, a ceremonial or, or, or figurehead position on uh, that allowed him to continue to wield influence even though he wasn't still president. Uh, and so this is really a case of an internal problem in Kazakhstan that threatened instability on Russia's border and Russia responding to that, uh, much as I think any state with the means to do so would. And so trying to project these sort of imperialistic fantasies onto a fairly almost routine response to instability on their border uh, is, a, is a serious mistake. And it, it shows how and trapped in the past a lot of Russia hawks are uh, in the way that they think about Russian foreign policy, the way that they think about what motivates the Russian government. They assume that anything that they do must be aimed at rebuilding the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union is what a lot of these people remember uh, as the enemy. That's what they that's what they grew up learning right. to hate. It's what that's how they see that part of the world. Everything is still essentially the Soviet Union, but it's just broken up into different pieces. And it's been thirty years. The Soviet Union hasn't existed for thirty years. I know a lot of people that work in these areas uh, as as regional experts really hate it when these countries are still referred to as former Soviet republics because it's been a generation since they've been Soviet anything. It's the, the world has moved on. And unfortunately, a lot of people in Washington have not. They, they're still hung up on thinking about all these things in a very uh, dated way that goes back to when they were uh, you know, much younger, when they, when they were at the beginning of their careers, and, and they, they can't break out of these mental habits. And so they, they end up misinterpreting everything that Russia does uh, and, and putting it in the worst possible light because they, they simply can't imagine what else it could be. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree entirely. Um, but, you know, one of the one of the aspects here that that seems to get lost in the American mainstream media is that they may not be they, they may be 30 years removed from the Soviet experience, but these countries have Russians in them. And so whether it be Ukraine or Kazakhstan, there are uh, Russian people there. And I feel like, you know, what gets lost is that this is not uh, Vladimir Putin trying to just gain territory. There is a struggle, particularly in, in Ukraine, about the identity of these regions within Ukraine and whether or not they are more sympathetic politically and culturally to Russia or to Ukraine. And that's a lot of nuance that the, the mainstream media often ignores because it doesn't really fit this narrative that Putin is just acting with in Russia's interests uh, when it comes to Crimea, for example, or the greater debate over Ukraine. And as my colleague, Anatole Levin, had pointed out in an excellent analysis, and I'm not just saying that because I work with him, but that in terms of breaking down the dynamics of Kazakhstan and what it might mean to us, uh, to the geopolitics in the, in the region, um, it, it was quite informative. And it talked about the Russian-speaking minority in 
Kazakhstan and how ethnic conflict could be activated if the U.S. or Western interests start weighing in and fomenting uh, protests uh, and, and de democracy, democracy promotion, you know, the color revolution uh, playbook, because there is this underlying tension that has dissipated over the last 30 years. But yet, if an outsider comes in and decides to make this all about Russia, and this is all about Putin activating his legions uh, in, in his own, for his own uh, territorial aspirations, that could lead to backlash within Kazakhstan between the Russian and non-Russian people there if this becomes all about Russia. And we don't understand that because we don't understand Kazakhstan <laughs> simply. I mean, there are experts out there who can like who, who can talk about this now that the spotlight is on this country. But, you know, I'm you know, there are foreign people writing in the foreign policy space in, or in the mainstream media, let's just say, who wouldn't have been able to find it on a map so easily two weeks ago, who are now um, raising this Russia bugaboo. And I think that's quite dangerous. Definitely. And one of the things that I liked about that piece that you mentioned that, that Anatole wrote uh, is that he made a point of distinguishing uh, Putin's kind of nationalism, which is a Russian state nationalism uh, from a Russian ethnic nationalism. And so, you know, whereas an ethnic nationalist might see Russian minorities in neighboring countries as uh, opportunities for uh, peeling off territory and, and absorbing that territory and incorporating it into Russia, uh, what, what Putin has done uh, has not really followed that pattern, especially with Kazakhstan, uh, because the, he has not encouraged uh, Russians in Kazakhstan to pursue separatism and, in fact, has actually quashed efforts when they have arisen uh, to try to stir up some sort of insurgency against the Kazakh government. And so it, it's important to see that for, for someone like him, uh, keeping friendly governments in power is what matters most. Uh, he, only, he will only tend to resort to uh, destabilizing activities when he sees a hostile government uh, encroaching or, or, or arising on Russia's borders. Uh, what I think what they did in, in shoring up Tokayev in Kazakhstan was an effort to try to make sure that the government in Kazakhstan remains a friendly one, remains uh, in, uh, in alignment with Moscow. And I, and I think they've managed to do that at a fairly low cost. And, and that's, that's the side of Russian foreign policy that I think a lot of people don't get when they look at it from the West, uh, because it, it always gets uh, viewed through this, this uh, antiquated lens of, of uh, you know, Russian imperialism, when that's, it's really not relevant. I found it, you know, when the demonstrations began, and the headlines started talking about people being killed, buildings on fire, I, you know, I was kind of rushing to to try to figure out what the real base dynamics were at the time. But very quickly, I started seeing headlines in American press about Russia. 
And mm-hmm. it, it made me a little nervous because I, you know, I know that the U.S.-Russia talks were about to happen, which are occurring right now in, in Geneva. And NATO is going to be speaking with Russian officials later this week. So it just seemed very timed that uh, with all of the talk about Russia and its influence in Ukraine, suddenly we have this other hot spot in which Russia is throwing its weight around. And I felt like that was uh, very um, uh, disingenuous, well, disingenuous, but very unhelpful and, and, and potentially dangerous to start to start a, a media narrative in, in this way. And particularly when Russian troops started coming in and they're in the, in the multinational forces, but they're most there, I believe they're all Russian because of this security agreement that they, that they had that you mentioned. And I was thinking, well, what if we had a similar security pact with Mexico, our next door neighbor, and they had a similar outburst of, of demonstrations uh, and violence. And they turned to us and says, well, per this, security agreement, can you send some uh, soldiers, some National Guardsmen or whatever over to just lock down the perimeter around, you know, our federal buildings or whatever? And we did. I don't see the difference, I mean, than what happened in Russia, but yet it was reported as though that Russia was making a move uh, that was untoward and and, 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 and neo-imperialistic in a way, and I feel like there was just no uh, sense of perspective <laughs> by the Western media. I, well, that's right, and I and a part of that I think comes from not ha- having a very good picture of what goes on in most of these other countries, uh, and, and and having a very simplistic view of what goes on in Russia and, and what, how the Russians look at the rest of the world around them, and so I you know changing subjects a little bit and coming over to Ukraine again, one of the things that I've been struck by with, with all the Western analysts looking at Russian complaints about NATO expansion and, and NATO weapons in Ukraine is that they keep saying, oh, that the Russians aren't really threatened by that, as though we know what, better than the Russians what they perceive as threats. They're, they're not really threatened by these things. That's just their excuse. When the, the, the much simpler explanation is that they, in fact, do feel threatened by the expansion of a hostile military alliance on their frontier, and that they do feel threatened by the provision of advanced weapons into a neighboring country. That's that's not, and, and maybe their fear is exaggerated, but it's not coming out of nowhere. And there, so there's this very kind of ideologically driven interpretation that says, oh no, what they're really worried about is uh, democracy in Ukraine. And, and to that, I would say they may be concerned about both of those things. They, they might view the military threat as serious, and they also view the political threat as a serious one. And what really frightens them is the combination of the two. And so, so it doesn't have to be one or the other. We, we ought to be able to understand that they perceive these threats as linked. And so there, there's, just, there's no effort to understand it from their side. Uh, and so we continually misread them and assume that they're out for conquest when their goals are actually uh, something quite different.
guest today is Elizabeth Shackelford. She is currently senior fellow with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and she's working on building awareness and understanding of a restraint approach to foreign policy. She was previously a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. Uh, before that, she was a career diplomat with the U.S. Department of State until December 2017, when she resigned in protest of the Trump administration. She is the author of The Descent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age, and her book won the 2020 Douglas Dillon Book Award. As a foreign service officer, she served in Somalia, Kenya, South Sudan, Poland, and Washington. For her work in South Sudan organizing the evacuation during the outbreak of civil war in 2013, she received the Barbara Watson Award for Consular Excellence, the department's highest award for consular work. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. And it's great to talk to you again. Uh, we talked to you about your book in a, a previous podcast and uh, looking forward to talking more about uh, other issues today. Uh, one of those is the war in Somalia and U.S. involvement in it. Uh, you've written about that uh, several times uh, in recent months and years. Uh, you described it in one piece as a classic case of war creep. Uh, U.S. involvement has been going on there since at least 2007, but it's almost never reported on and rarely receives any attention from members of Congress. Uh, that changes occasionally when there is a drone strike that uh, makes the headlines, but usually it's ignored. Uh, how can Americans rein in these unauthorized wars when most of us don't even know they're happening? Uh, isn't this an argument for repealing the 2001 AUMF? It absolutely is. And you're right. The biggest challenge, in my opinion, is that Americans don't understand that we're at war in Somalia and in a lot of other places. The number of conversations I've had with people, you know, kind of friends, family members, people outside the foreign policy universe after um, Biden withdrew our troops from Afghanistan was, you know, this is great. The war is over. And I just kept like, you know, smacking my forehead. like, No, the war is not over. It has just changed. And it has become something that is a lot less visible to most Americans. And, you know, let's be honest. I mean, Afghanistan in the waning days of it was one of the most visible things that we have. And yet still there, we had that horrific strike in the you know, just days before uh, we pulled out our ground troops um, that killed 10 civilians. And Americans you know, kind of cringed at the idea, but there really wasn't any outrage. So you apply that to something that happened right you know, on news channels across the globe with Americans and the rest of the world watching. I mean, if we can't get real action to rein in our air wars after that, you know, what hope do we have in Somalia? So that's one of the reasons that I spend a lot of time writing, not just in kind of foreign policy circles, but trying to raise awareness in broader American circles about what's still happening with these air wars in particular um, and what's allowing them to happen, which, uh, as you said, is you know, the 2001 AUMF is a major offender of that. Um, but there, there are other ways that they find to continue doing. The challenge is that we don't consider it war, what we're doing there. And I think that um, the American public needs to start asking more questions. And if they need a reason to, let's just look at the defense budget, because you know, we're spending a tremendous amount of money overseas on wars that aren't really helping America's national interests instead of spending it here at home. And uh, resilience at home is, is really essential for our national interest. Trying to continue to bomb Al-Shabaab in Somalia really isn't anymore. Absolutely. And, and as you've pointed out in your pieces, uh, Al-Shabaab is one of these groups that didn't even exist at the time that the AOMF was passed. Uh, and, and it's certainly not one that can actually project power or, or uh, threaten the United States itself. Uh, we're, we're fighting other people's wars uh, and sort of folding it into uh, the, the larger war on terror. Uh, but really, we, we've just decided to join other people's conflicts. And, and it, it doesn't uh, really make a lot of sense. Uh, what, one of the areas uh, where a lot of U.S. military involvement happens in Africa uh, is with uh, security assistance to local governments. Uh, 
which can often uh, involve U.S. forces in combat without them being officially designated as combat forces, right? We saw that uh, in Niger. Uh, we've seen it in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, and there's a, there are other uh, negative consequences to this. You've written about how supplying and supporting abusive security forces often directly undermines democracy in Africa. Um, what are some examples of where this is happening and what policy changes would you what would help to reverse the damage that is being done? One of the biggest problems with our security sector work is that uh, we're really willing to turn a blind eye to uh, the unintended negative consequences. And exactly as you've suggested, I mean, the, the, the big challenge is that we're, we're, picking, we're picking winners, we're picking sides on what are effectively internal conflicts over very legitimate grievances. And we're propping up bad governments in the process. So by continuing to gloss over the challenges, let's look at Somalia as a really good example. Um, we've been focused on both security sector reform, counterterrorism work, and democracy and governance issues. But those first two really drown out all of the work that we're doing on anything else in the democracy and, and governance side. It doesn't mean that we're not, you know, we have a lot of programs, USAID is working closely with government. When I was in Somalia in you know, 2016 and 2017, we, you know, one of our biggest issues was the election um, or the electoral process, I should say. And, you know, we were, we were really ready to check that box with the trappings of democracy. Um, and yet, then in the years after, we weren't willing to do the hard work to ensure that that government that we helped put in place actually was responsive to the people. Um, and we chose not to because we kept looking at the primacy of the security situation. And, you know, we decided that it was more important for us to continue to double down on supporting this government that was in place, which we, cho- which we chose to legitimize by you know, continuing to fund it and to continuing to support its military, uh, despite increasing signs of authoritarian uh, shifts by that government. Um, I mean, I was there on on the day that um, that Farmajo, the current president, was uh, was selected, and it was really exciting. I mean, he was basically pushing out a very corrupt actor in the prior president. Um, but you have to be willing to look at the warts, <laughs> the folks that you're supporting, and and change your policies accordingly. And we weren't uh, for several years now. You can listen to what the State uh, Department and the White House are saying about, you know, urging um, that the president of uh, Somalia to actually allow the elections to happen, which were supposed to happen long ago at this point. Um, but, you know, those words don't really change the fact that we're continuing to really prop them up with our um, support, even though we're doing the quote unquote over the horizon work with drones. We're still, you know, funding the security assistance and security sector reform. And we're just basically commuting from, you know, neighboring states. So um, it's really that decision to to put that security work above all else, which is a short term vision um, that's really harming our ability um, and really, as you say, undermining our democracy efforts across the continent. And it's not just Somalia. Uh, you know, we, we turn a blind eye to really bad acts in a lot of other parts of the continent. Nigeria is a really good example of, you know, continuing to help them with uh, with weapons and supplies and training, um, despite having you know real signs of human rights abuses by the security services there, um, censorship um, and blocking the free speech by the government there. And of course, then you look at the security assistance we provided for Mali, which has basically helped facilitate a couple of coups there. So you know, I could, the list goes on, but the, the long, I mean, the, the short story there is basically that we don't have a lot of positive outcomes to show from our security assistance. Um, and we need to start being really critical, a lot more critical about, you know, not just is it working? Um, I think it's clear it's not working, but just how much is it helping to seal in, um, you know, bad governance situations? 
Hi, Lizzie. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm sort of glad to see you and, and talk with you again. Um, uh, we talked a, a bit about uh, the counterterrorism <clears throat> strategy of the past, and uh, you mentioned that you know the drone strikes in in Afghanistan, or at least the ones um, the one uh, outgoing as we were withdrawing. And there's been a number of New York Times reports about. Uh, our airstrikes and our counterterrorism mm -hmm. strategy in in Syria and thing and 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 civilian kill, killings that hadn't been reported mm -hmm. before and uh, this is an ongoing conversation but we did have a piece uh, recently on responsible statecraft uh, based on reporting by Air Wars mm -hmm. uh, which pointed out uh, that all told uh, to 2021 saw a de decrease in airstrikes uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, and Yemen uh, from the previous year, 54% uh, decrease in U.S. airstrikes. Um, in Somalia, there had been 72 in, in 2020. There were nine in 2021, uh, an 88% decrease. I was wondering, A, what you thought about that, whether you think that this is a good sign, a promising sign, uh, should we, uh, what what can we extrapolate from it? Mm -hmm. But also I'd like to, I'm wondering overall, what do you think of Biden's first year in terms of his strategy, uh, his strategy uh, relating to counterterrorism uh, abroad in the areas that, that you know best and overall, his foreign policy and diplomatic record in that first year. You know, I'd have to say that um, it, it started out promising and, and President Biden and many members of his team had said a lot of the right things. And I was very pleased to see the dramatic drop in the numbers of airstrikes. Now, we have to compare that, though, to the dramatic increase that we saw throughout the Trump years, because, you know, we're, we're coming down from kind of a ridiculous number um, with very, very little oversight and, and almost no admissions of the, the many errant strikes and the many um, <clears throat> you know, civilians that were killed. So um, I, I don't like to judge entirely on a curve. I think that's a little yeah. unfair. So uh, but judging, you know, this Biden's team, a lot of people who are very uh, very experienced in these areas and have understood and have talked about a lot of the problems. Um, you know, I think it's promising. But then when we what we've seen with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and you, know, I we know so much more about what Biden's thinking is based on what's happening in Afghanistan, because we see so much more of it out front. Right. There still hasn't been much clarity in you know what they're thinking in terms. You know, they're rethinking a lot of counterterrorism approaches in West Africa. They're rethinking some of what's going on in Somalia. They haven't decided to move. Um, troops back on the ground in Somalia, but we really don't have much insight. So extrapolating, though, from what we saw in Afghanistan, which is we're ending the war, we're continuing an air war, um, you know, but that's not a war. It, you know, for me, that's telling of where uh, Biden's uh, kind of mental state and approach is on this and where his team is. So I expect that there will be a less kind of radical use of airstrikes, and I do expect that there will be a, a little bit more, um, uh, I guess, you know, caution, if you will. But that's, again, that's only uh, um, coming above something that was a really bad basis. Um, my fear is that, again, that one horrific example of the airstrike in Kabul, the military coming out and saying there will be no changes and no one held accountable for that. And really, we haven't seen anything from the Biden administration countering that. 
if there's not an acknowledgement that there's a real problem with that scenario, um, then I really don't see places like Somalia where all of this is so much more under the radar and has so much less publicity to it. I don't see us uh, you know, bringing that level of care that we need. Um, I absolutely applaud the incredible work by the New York Times in exposing all of this through that remarkable investigation, but it just harms my soul to see how little outrage that brought. Um, I mean, the public really doesn't seem to care. So, you know, my thought is we all, we all need to do a lot more to draw public attention to that and not just to the, the horrific loss of innocent lives, but to the fact that it undermines our national security in places like Somalia. You know, we're creating a national security situation for ourselves because the more that we're dropping bombs and, you know, against uh, occasionally, you know, innocent people, but also just people who have grievances against a very bad government that we prop up, the more likely al-Shabaab is going to do what they've continued to do over the past, you know, decade, which is to see us as an enemy fighting them at home, and they will strike Americans and American interests in the region. That's what we've seen. That's not because they're out there to get Americans. That's because we're in their country getting them, you know, striking them at home. What we need to be focusing on is the underlying grievances. <clears throat> and by you know, rapidly um, uh, categorizing these groups as terrorist organizations, we're precluding some of the other ways that we could reach resolutions. And Mozambique is a great example of that, right? You know, it was last year that we took this local insurgency um, that was taking on you know, using terrorist tactics. Ta terrorism is a tactic, it's an approach. It's not, you know, it's, it's hard to define who is and who isn't a terrorist, but you can say they're using terrorist tactics and that's true. Um, you can see these groups looking to have loose alliances or different forms of alliances with known terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And they're doing that for resources most of the time. It, it, but what they're really fueling are these internal um, insurgencies and civil wars over legitimate grievances. And we need to focus more on helping these governments and these societies address those grievances because we're not going to kill our way to peace, whether it's in Somalia or Mozambique or Mali. Do you do you get a sense just in your reading and your own research that there is a movement afoot to keep U.S. military in 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 Africa writ large out of a concern that uh, Russia and China are moving in and filling uh, certain power vacuums, like uh, most recently in Mali, Russians uh, Russian trainers have come in uh, at the behest of the, the leader there. Do you feel like this is yet another excuse? Do you see, do you see more, are you hearing more of that justification? Oh yeah, I mean, if what you're referring to is like control F, like search for counterterrorism and replace great power competition. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on in the continent right now. I think part of that is AFRICOM looking for its purpose and its meaning in a, in a, in a scenario where we've got um, you know, a, a lower level of interest in the great war, the uh, global war against terror. And I think that there is this, this FOMO, this fear of missing out, like, well, surely there must be a really good reason to be, uh, you know, in the Sahel if uh, the Russians are now, are now coming in to do that. You know, surely there must be a reason for us to, you know, to look at some of these places where China's getting more of a footprint on the ground. But, you know, we have to stop just comparing what we, we have to stop trying to like out China, China. Um, and we need to learn from our own experiences. China and Russia have not been as involved militarily on the continent as we have. We should learn from our experience. Absolutely. And one of the pieces of that experience that I noticed last year uh, that, that 
really hasn't been followed up on or, or talked about very much is this uh, support that we've been rendering to the government in Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're supporting their efforts against a group called the Allied Democratic Forces, which mm-hmm. is an old Ugandan insurgent group that has since been associated with or linked with the Islamic State. Uh, and in fact, has been designated as a, the Islamic mm-hmm. State's affiliate in that uh, country. Um, and I, I was, it struck me as strange that we were even sending special forces there because it, it seemed inconceivable that a group in Eastern Congo could possibly mm-hmm. be a threat to the United States. Uh, and so if, if the war on terror is extending even to Congo now, uh, where does it end uh, and, and and what possible authorization does the Biden administration have for a mission like that? It's remarkable, really, because you're taking a lot of conflicts that have been around for a long time. And it almost seems like both sides see a benefit to really elevating the connection with uh, you know, global terrorist groups. Those, uh, those insurgency groups see the benefit because it's easy for ISIS to say, we're going to affiliate with you and provide some um, some material support and, you know, and then you will, you know, pledge allegiance to us. And then we can say we've got this foothold in Congo. Um, right. I mean, that, that gives ISIS, you know, that, that gives benefits for both sides there. They get resources on one side and ISIS gets to say, claim that their, their footprint is getting wider. And the governments, on the other hand, are, are looking at the scenario and saying, well, we can really rile up the United States if we call this as Islamic terrorist group now. Um, right. And it's, it's dangerous because, I mean, and you don't have to get into the the nitty gritty of, you know, are they a terrorist group or are they not? Because at the end of the day, we've already learned that our approach to counterterrorism is not very effective. There are double the number of extremist groups out there today that there were at the beginning of the war on terror, as I read in a very good piece in Responsible Statecraft recently. Um, but it's, you know, to me, the answer shouldn't be, okay, we call it terrorism now, so let's go on with our old playbook. It should be our playbook wasn't working. How do we do this better? Whether we're talking about an insurgency group that's been around for a long time or a, a new affiliate of ISIS that's expanding its reach. Either way, what we're talking about are groups on the ground that are not being served by their governments. So there are a lot of people who are, you know, young people in particular who are susceptible to being pulled in because they don't have other alternatives and options. And I'm not saying this is easy. I mean, you know, just saying, well, we just need better governments. I mean, these things are very hard. But what I think we should focus on is narrowing are the way that we're looking at these. Prioritizing not enhancing the harm, not contributing to the harm by, you know, let's say arming security services that are already abusing uh, the local population, you know, and let's make sure, let's prioritize, you know, do no harm first. And let's look at what the underlying grievances are and see where reasonably and realistically we can contribute. And at the end of the day, I think that we also have to accept that we can't fix all of these situations. We should continue to try to use the full, you know, complement of our diplomatic and development, um, you know, and, and parts of our hard power toolbox. But we should, you know, look across the board and make sure that we're not accidentally making things worse. Because I think one of the big things we've taken away from the global war on terror and what we have seen in, in so much reporting on Afghanistan is that we have, in the last 20 years, our global war on terror has made things worse. 
I know we're a bit out of time, but quickly, I'd love to ask you, as, as somebody who is a career uh, State Department official who resigned out of disgust uh, with um, the, the the progress and the policies of the Trump administration, Trump administration, what do you think of the Biden administration in terms of its pledge to put diplomacy back at the center of its foreign policy? How do you feel uh, that has um has that come to any fruition in 2021? And what are you looking for in 2022 in that regard? Well, I'll start by saying that, you know, there is a lot to, it's not enough to just have words, but what we say, what our leadership says does matter. So that is a start. I think it is important that our government, the White House, uh, you know, talks about the importance of diplomacy and leading with diplomacy. I think that we've seen some real missteps. I, I give the Biden credit that I do believe um, at the end of the day, the folks leading our foreign policy there want to do the right thing and they understand a lot of the problems. I think that they've fallen really short in a lot of in a lot of areas so far. Um, so I'm not going to give them, you know, an A grade yet. But um, I, I also think that realistically, having been in government, you know, this administration was facing a lot of obstacles over the last year. You know, I, realistically, I think that um, that we could only expect so much trying to get uh, things up, up and running. It took a really long time to get a lot of ambassadors in place. We still don't have all of them. Um, but I think that the prioritization is there. It remains to be seen whether they're going to follow through. Um, I think inertia is a very big obstacle to improving our foreign policy. And while we have a lot of experience in this administration, we ha- also have a lot of experience with leading with our hard power. Right. So that's kind of where they default to. They've got experience doing that. Um, but you have people in the administration who know that we need to lead more with diplomacy. So I think it's a, it's like turning a really, really big ship around. And I think they're working on it. They're not there yet. But we've got to keep the pressure on. We've got to keep calling them out when they fall short. And um, you know, we're in a better place, I think, than we were a year and a half ago. But we still have a long way to go. Definitely. And I, I appreciate uh, you coming on, Elizabeth. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your time. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show again. Elizabeth Shackelford, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. Thank you.